0: You're listening to an
1: ACCA podcast. Good evening, everyone. Can you all hear that pretty well? Good? Okay. Uh, my name's Andrew Atchison, and I work at ACCA as an artist educator. Um, and I'd like to welcome you all and uh, say thank you for coming to this panel tonight, Reflections on the Monument and Public Sculpture. Uh, I'd also like to welcome our guests tonight, artists Kathy Temin on the end there, Trent Walter and Emily Floyd. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to sin- sincerely acknowledge the Boon the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all members of the Kulin Nation, and we extend our respects to Elders past and present and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. So tonight's discussion will run for an hour. Uh, first, we're going to have a brief um, Uh, The artists are all going to talk to their work briefly and then we're going to go into a broader conversation and then finish with about 15 minutes of uh, questions and open discussion. Um, We're recording tonight, so if you do want to ask a question or make a comment at the end, just wait for the mic to get to you. That would be great. Um, And we're here tonight to discuss ideas around public sculpture and the monument in response to Tom Nicholson's exhibition Public Meeting, um, just behind us which includes several works that engage the form of the monument. For example, the piece at the very centre of the exhibition, which we can see in that image there, uh, Toward a Monument to Batman Street, considers the monument as a proposition for public sculpture yet to be realised. So we thought it would be an ideal opportunity to bring other voices in to reflect upon the ideas and practices around monuments, memorial and public sculpture. And we've got three people here with... uh, a really rich range of experience, and also really different kind of engagements. So just to introduce everyone formally, uh, Emily Floyd, who's on my immediate left, uh, works in sculpture, printmaking, and public installation to create text-based sculptures and pedagogically inspired works that combine a strong focus on visual qualities with an interest in the legacies of modernism. Her work engages many disciplines, including social activism, design and typography, literature and cultural studies, community participation and public education. Emily has completed major public art commissions, including for <clears throat> Heidi Museum of Modern Art, the 56th Venice Biennale, Eastlink Motorway, the Docklands Precinct and Monash University Museum of Art. Emily is a senior lecturer in the fine art program at MARTA, Monash University, and also an Australia Council and Maya Fellow. Uh, Trent Walter, next along is an artist, printer, and publisher working at the intersection of printed matter and contemporary art. Trent's collaborations include artist books, print set, print series, and workshops that explore the social aspects of printmaking practice. Along with Brooke Andrew, Trent was commissioned by the City of Melbourne to create a permanent public artwork commemorating the lives and public execution of Tunna Minowate and Morboy Hina. In 2013, uh, Trent and Brooke were joint recipients of a George Moore Fellowship, and Trent is also a sessional lecturer in printmaking at MARTA or well, at Monash University. And lastly, Kathy Temen has exhibited nationally and internationally since 1990. Kathy's sculptural practice explores memory, history, and materiality, and often employing her signature medium of synthetic fur to subvert the monumental scale of her sculptures. An attention to oppositional dialogue such as remembrance and play and monumentality and protection runs through her work. Cathy obtained her PhD from the University of Melbourne in 2007 and she is Professor and Interim Head of Fine Art at Monash Arbamada Monash University. In 2018, Monument Black Garden was included in Spacemakers and Broomshakers, installations from the collection at the Art Gallery of New South, New South Wales, in 2015, she made the Remembrance Project for the Gus Fisher Gallery in Auckland, and in 2019, a 20-year survey exhibition of her work was held at Heidi Museum of Modern Art. And recently, she completed a commission for Kanye West and Kim Kardashian in Los Angeles, which we'll have to hear something more about later on. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just to sort of open up the conversation with um, kind of finding... Uh, finding out about what has attracted you all to public forms. So each of you have worked with familiar public forms: uh, the memorial, the library, and the monument. Um, and what is it about public or communal kind of forms that attracts your interests?
0: It's a good question. I was I was actually reflecting on how I got into public sculpture. <laughs> like, how did I get here? And I think, for me, it was partly um, that I fell into it, that I was invited to make uh, works that were monumental in the public sphere and invited to uh, compete for those projects. And also, but also, I think, more importantly, it was because of my cultural background When I was growing up, my family were very involved in community politics. Um, And so the idea of public space as something that is contested and something that needs to be fought for, I think was something that I was willing to kind of go the road through those kind of difficult moments with with public art. Um, Yeah, and I think also the idea of being invited to adapt my work for the public sphere I was often asked to do to to consider subject matter that I was completely disinterested in and then that made me think well maybe I could just make up my own things that that I make public art for about and so that has been a really interesting um yeah really interesting journey as well
1: yeah, great. Yeah. That'd be a good segue, because I realised we were going to talk about your work before the conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you want
2: to...?
0: Um, yeah, so... Oh. OK,
3: there
0: we go. Um, yeah, so this is a work that I made for the entrance to Heidi Museum of Modern Art, and it's called Abstract Labour. So abstract labour is a Marxist concept um, that deals with the, the idea that, le- that our labour uh, can be broken down into divisible parts and then resold. So Marx talks about concrete labour and abstract labour. And I think I'm really interested in this idea of artists and the way we work and the fact that we don't get paid properly for our work <laughs> um, because I think... I mean, I guess in a way we choose that. We, so there's not much point in complaining about it. But the conditions that artists work under are the future of labour. So I think we are really well positioned to um, yeah, to think critically about the future of work and, and the past. So inside the gallery, you, see, you find the exploited artist who pays to work to present their work, basically. Uh, And on the other side, you find the cafe at at Heidi, where work is broken down into divisible parts. We've we've all worked in those jobs where you work for $20 an hour, $10 an hour. Um, So I I, I saw this as a a kind of public space to make a particular declaration. Um, And also, Heidi is a place that has a history around abstraction. And abstraction is not necessarily a good thing. So I I thought it was interesting to think differently about that. Um, And this is a work that I made for Monash University. I found that the, the history of protest at Monash is actually not documented in the library. So that kind of late flowering modernity, that era from the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, Uh, Monash had a really amazing, vibrant uh, student uh, culture of protest. And the the methods of protest actually kind of prefigure the internet, the the way that information was coming out every day and and there was this kind of lived history. So I contacted one of the the, um, activists and I found that there were people who had documented and saved materials and made a kind of temporary space for it. And uh, around the time of 1968, around that kind of, um, that period, uh, the students had a bookstore near, um, near Monash. And they, they had a leaflet and it was, this place will always be open. So it was a, a centre of, to gather and uh, share information. So that was the title of the work. Uh, And this is a work that I presented in the gardens of the Arsenale at Venice. And it kind of brought together uh, the thinking around around labor. So the text actually says concrete labor and the forms. The forms are kind of generated from looking at Italian kindergarten um, histories, specifically the Reggio Emilia approach which uses these kind of democratic forms and kind of symbolic images of wholeness in the circle. And this library opened up at the back into shelves and had a kind of open source library of um, critical perspectives on labor. So there were 200 different texts that were freely available And this is a work that kind of moves between the printed form and the public art form. So it's a work at Art Gallery of New South Wales, which spells out a fictional language by Ursula Le Guin uh, called Kesh, and the word says female orgasm. So this public space, I noticed when I was um, kind of thinking about what worked to, to make a work to respond to it, always had uh, male artists presented there. And so I wanted to make this kind of declaration which looked at, at the kind of feminist possibilities of this space, but also... Um, yeah, the kind, of the the idea of an, an embodied female space and a different kind of concept of the public. And I might round off there. Yeah. I just flick through these ones. Oh, this is at ACCA, actually. <laughs> so this is a work that I made with um, Mary Featherston for the feminist show that was presented uh, last year, uh, and it. Again, it works between the printed uh, image and the idea of infographics to present, to transform those into a democratic public form. And so this was a magazine that was edited by my mother uh, called Ripple, which advocated for childcare um, so that women could go out to work and for also for for, for better institutions, but also for deinstitutionalisation, institutionalization And uh, so this, this form was opened up as a bookable public space uh, during the, the um, exhibition. And this was a monument to Joan Kerner. I can talk about it later. Thank you.
2: Hello everyone. Uh, I was thinking about Andrew's first question about what made you interested in public art and alongside my activities uh, running a studio called Negative Press which as Andrew mentioned publishes The Magician Prints and Artist Books Uh, I worked for a long time in the studio of Brooke Andrew and we met around 2007 so two years before I started Negative Press and over the course of working together our relationship changed. I started as a an assistant within the studio and towards the end we started collaborating on artwork together before I moved into negative press full time. But I think around 2011, Brooke was commissioned to do a big public artwork uh, in Sydney at a residential space, a development site that um, wasn't going to be developed for a couple of years. So they had a number of artists do um, artists in residences and make some public work. And Brooke uh, decided to make a work called Local Memory which ended up, the form ended up being a series of 24 very large photographs surrounded by neon and the neon were programmed to come on and highlight different faces uh, from the work. My role in that was research. I was contacting people within the community, um, making those connections and actually sourcing photographs of people uh, related to the development site which used to be the Carlton United Breweries. I think that that definitely led to an interest in public art and along with um, printmaking practice is very collaborative and it's often happening in a studio environment. And Emily showed a couple of things we've done together, including the, the uh, female orgasm book after Ursula K. Le Guin. And the idea of that, in a way, was a, a distributable format for that work. So I think there's a, there's a real relationship between uh, those ideas of distribution and dissemination but then put within a public space um, that hopefully is not developed uh, later on. Uh, The work here, this is a development drawing of standing by Tanaminuwa and Mawwahina, which is on the corner of Victoria and Franklin streets in Melbourne. Currently has uh, behind it RMIT and there's the old Melbourne jail site. And there's also a very large metro kind of construction uh, tunnel on the other side currently. Uh, This is an early drawing as I mentioned about printmaking being quite a collaborative practice. These were developed by Andre Bonas at Monash Art Projects. And I'm not sure if people know the story of Tandemunwaite Mawwahina, but they're from Tasmania. Uh, uh, Tandemunwaite was from the Northwest and uh, Mawwahina from the Northeast of Tasmania. They were in the care, care, they traveled around with George Augustus Robinson, uh, were pretty much uh, chased off the island as everyone else was being slaughtered, came to Melbourne, uh, left, left his so called care as the protector of Aborigines, ended up in Western Port um, where they were in an altercation, someone was killed, they were kind of trapped, brought back to Melbourne, tried, um, found guilty, and given a very harsh sentence, um, and were sentenced to die by hanging. And it was the first public execution in Melbourne on the 20th of January, 1842. There's a, there's a great book called "Hunt Them, Hunt them Hang Them by um, Lynette Russell and uh, Kathy Ordy, which goes through the trial, um, which, I rec- which is fantastic reading. Uh, it's very grim, but it's, uh, incredibly, uh, it incredibly illuminates the story and why aspects of the trial from a legal perspective were unfair for Tanamunat Mwobwahina. So Brooke and I uh, were commissioned, uh, there were two other artist groups as well, uh, Julie Goff and Greg Lehman, and also Vicky West and Marie Clark. And we all traveled around uh, Tasmania with elders, Auntie Patsy Cameron, um, Uncle, Uncle Murray Everett, and went to different parts of, uh, different sites, including Cape Grim, the site of a massacre of Tundum Nuit's people. We went around to the Bay of Fires um, as a research for this project. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but we wanted to connect the site to the jail. uh, And this is the final form of the monument. Uh, There is a a tomb-like structure which is supported by the swing. uh, And there's also five newspaper stands which have didactic panels within them and uh, a a kind of uh, garden planted around it. But I'm sure we'll talk a bit further about it. I'll hand over to Cathy.
3: Thank you. Um, I was just thinking about that question uh, and I went to see an exhibition at the Jewish Museum in New York in 1994 called Holocaust Memorials. It was a, um, an artist's uh, call out for um, memorials for the Holocaust and It was models of um, proposed memorials. It was a competition. And James E. Young was the curator and is a writer about Holocaust memorials. And at that time, I just thought, oh, my God, I really want to be doing this. Um, I actually would like to make a formal Holocaust memorial, but I've come... uh, to do the work that I've made more recently, since 2008, um, predominantly to be indoors and predominantly in public spaces. And I'm interested in the museum as being a hauser of memory and, or containing the work because it is a hauser of memory. Um, All of my work, even uh, before 2008, has predominantly been in synthetic fur And I'm interested in the exaggerated emotions of soft toy imagery. And I never wanted to make soft toys, but I'm interested in the materiality of what that evokes and the comfort and the protection. And in 2008, I went on a a big tour with my mother called March of the Living to Holocaust memorial sites in Eastern Europe at the same time as my stepfather, who's a Holocaust survivor, um, was taking school children through Eastern Europe, um, being the survivor talking about his experiences in the locations. And I grew up as the child of a Holocaust survivor. Um, My father was Hungarian born, and I had started to think about this in relationship to art history, Jewish history, and the intersections of, um, those ideas and it was really only after I'd been to some of the sites in 2008 that I physically felt incredibly small and psychologically felt very very small in these spaces and I really wanted to translate that feeling but the thing about what I'm also interested in is I don't think that you can experience... Um, Adversity, without also experiencing optimism. And, uh, and I've grown up with both extremities. And uh, this was commissioned, this work at my monument, um, White Forest, was commissioned for an exhibition called Optimism. So I did start thinking about, you know, um, what is optimism? And I couldn't separate adversity from optimism because um, as a child of a Holocaust survivor, Uh, There is an incredible celebration about life. Um, The fact that, you know, my father survived or grew up a lot of immigrants or migrants that survive trauma. Just, um, I suppose you can go either way, but I know that uh, I've experienced a lot of joy um, at survival and uh, at at being the child of a survivor. And uh, so part of me wants to celebrate that and part of me wants to remember people that can't speak for themselves, and also refer to the presence of absence through um, some of these works. And it's interesting, Emily, talking about labour, I'm really interested in repetition and time it takes to make work. It's very handmade, labour-intensive. I don't do it all myself. I work with ex a students that I employ as my assistants, and, uh, and I teach them how to do the work, and I still do some of it. But the time that it takes is also about remembrance for me and the labour around that. And so this work originally, the seating is also uh, important for me. There's seating in each corner of this room uh, for, in this context, for contemplation. And uh, I was very interested in this otherworldly space as well as a a space of remembrance. And uh, then I made my monument, Black Cube, at Anna Schwartz Gallery in 2009, where it was the opposite of walking through. It was walking around and it was this impenetrable black cube, uh, again made out of synthetic fur. The other thing, if um, you haven't seen my work in the flesh, there's something that happens with all the stuffing in the space where it generates um, uh, silence because of the um, filling. And that's something that was unexpected, That something that I really enjoy about that. Uh, I've included work... So I'm just focusing on remembrance and the presence of absence for this very short talk. I have done a tram, and I have done works looking at popular culture and the koala and cultural identity as an Australian. But um, I'm focusing on the public, and this is a work that um, I did in Claremont Street in South Yarra where I was translating forests. Everyone says to me, you know, apply for these public art projects, and then they go, and how are you going to do them? And um, this was one of them that I did do. I'm in the process of uh, developing another one in concrete, and so how I've worked through these ideas is i 've tried to keep the handmadeness of the work and to cast directly from the fur rather than to you know make it a secondary uh, form. I did an exhibition again at Anna Schwartz Gallery in two thousand and fourteen called Pet Cemetery, where I made tombstones for pets combining synthetic fur with concrete and interior design and decoration, which is also another interest of mine, especially from the 70s. And I'm interested in memory and history and the monochrome, but memory and history in relationship to materials as well as colour and scale. And uh, these were based on uh, the names of human Uh, Animals that had died of my own and um, my friends. So the sentimentality that's attached to having a pet. And, yeah, so this was Pet Tomb Harry, Pet Tomb Oscar, Pet Tomb Tina. So none of them were titled Kitty or Miffy or, you know. um, So that was quite important. And one was called Boris and Roger. Um, So I'm showing this work because I'm in the process of developing a public work that's in remembrance to a space that no longer exists. And I've used seating, as I've mentioned before, as a reference to sitting, activating spaces, thinking about the space that you're in or looking at another work in the space. And I'm in the process of making or developing this work into concrete, but in another context. And um, and I've also done archives of um, relating to my father's history and my stepfather's history of um, survivors' histories and also travelling to memorial events around the world, interviewing people. Uh, And so it's a personal archive, but it's also historical and it has a lot of information in it. And the most recent bench, I did a residency in New Zealand And I was really interested in locational identity and why Holocaust survivors migrated to New Zealand. And it's the first time I really interviewed people I didn't know, but coming at the interview from uh, obviously a personal perspective, but trying to see what correlations there were between Australian migration and uh, why people came to New Zealand. And a lot of these survivors were child survivors and from Prague. And I actually went to Prague to interview one of them and... Yeah, I found it really uh, amazing to hear these people's stories. And there were a lot of similarities about why people end up in a country and how they um, recreate their lives for themselves uh, after trauma and after being the only survivor of their family and often a a child survivor. Uh, And the other thing about this work, I didn't want to show images of people. I really wanted you to hear people's voices. And I wanted you to experience uh, remembrance by sitting on the seat, whether you listen to the sound or not. And my last work is thinking again about presence of absence. And I've shown a lot of work from Anna Schwartz Gallery just for this context, because uh, this is a recent work that I did last year, White Garden Intervention. I really didn't want to make anything for inside the space last year. I just wanted to, um, I wanted you to think about the space, the empty space. And so I and also wanted you to think about the architecture. And so, well, I was thinking about the architecture. And so I blocked off the space by making a work to the dimensions of the um, entrance. And I knew that it could operate as a work if it wasn't in the entrance, but as a remembrance of that space. And also a remembrance of the empty space, and you could actually see through and have the empty space. So um, that's it. Great, thank you. Okay. Um,
1: just on that last note, and um, oh, I think control from there. Um, you're talking about not wanting to represent people and more absence, and I think that's something that runs through all of the works that we've seen tonight. I know there is a small image of Tana and Morbohina in one of those newspaper boxes, but Compared to traditional um, commemorative memorials, which are often quite explicit about events and the people that they depict, you all seem to uh, tend away from that kind of practice. I'm just interested in whether that's a conscious thing or it's just... um, I I don't know. I just want to know.
3: (laughs) For me, it's been a conscious thing... Um... I've wanted the abstracted idealized gardens to refer and the repetition of that to um, an abstraction. Um, uh, I also, I think that that there are so so many monuments and memorials in history that illustrative of people's pain or of the event that happened. There are some like, the famous disappearing monument that goes into the ground. Um, I've forgotten the name of the artist.
1: So have I. (laughs) Yeah. The Rachel Whiteread's
3: library. And Rachel Whiteread's library. There's so many... um, uh, The Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. Um, There's a lot of uh, new memorials that that are about abstraction and repetition. And for me, it was a conscious thing of not wanting to illustrate something because... For me, and I also need to say that I'm not really wanting to talk about the Holocaust, even though that's clearly informed my practice, but I'm also really interested in the space of memory or the space of contemplation or the space, the site of activating a site in different ways. So for me to do something illustrative or um, representational is not what I'm uh, trying to talk about. Um, But everyone has their different language and um, how they explore what they're trying to say. But I think abstraction is quite relevant for the times that we're working in, in that uh, when you're talking about remembrance of any one event, there seems to be so many more events that it refers to at the same time, it's not just one person that died, or one group of people that died—it just everything seems to, um, unfortunately, merge into one, one experience. But I know they're different. But
2: yeah, uh, I think that they're, particularly with standing by Tullamore Way, Morbolhino—it's an incredibly complex history. So to to, to simply illustrate it um, felt like it didn't do justice to the story. But also, we we're very determined uh, in our approach and thoughts about the project to make something that. Um, was an inviting space as a civic space so people would engage with it but also to make a work that um, still related to um, contemporary art practice or art practice, not just thinking about we need to make a memorial, we need to make plaques. Um, I think you know, particularly with the way we approached it through thinking about the ready-made and Brooke originally had wanted to make a swing so you could sit in the swing and look back at the jail and then think about um, what, is, what has happened on or around this site, because it's the, the work is cited either where or close to where the hanging took place. Um, and for myself, uh, this, after travelling to Tasmania, I felt very convinced that, that we needed a, a more complex way of communicating the story. I mean, my ideal thing to do would be to, to produce a newspaper that could be endlessly replenished, that people could take. So it would be uh, something that would be news every day, so that these stories don't um, disappear and, and fall away. And so that's how we came to the idea of the newspaper stands. And there are sculptures or there, there are panels within those boxes which actually do give a greater sense of the story from different perspectives.
0: Yeah, well, I guess a monument is forever. And I would question the rationale of in this, as a settler artist, of having... Um, a monument or an object permanently located on this stolen land. So there's that is in my mind. I also think this time, this kind of neoliberal time, is one of the event and the event culture. And so the the cutting through is in the moment of the event. There's not much interest in forever. Um, And those materials that uh, are forever, like bronze, they seem dead, I think. They don't have the cinematic quality that, um, that brings attention in this time. Um, yeah, and there's a question around who gets to have a monument, who gets to speak. Um, yeah, I, so in that way, maybe finding alternative civic monuments is a form of anti-monument. Um, yeah, in art speak, we talk about monument and anti-monument. Um, but yeah, I think you have to speak from your position, from, from my position. Uh, also looking at, thinking about the idea of a kind of left-wing monument. Uh, the history that, that I'm interested in, the monument was something that, it was probably more located in the archive. Uh, than in images or sculptures of people, Uh, and monuments were were shared. So, for example, doing a public art mural, uh, everyone came together as a community on the day and did it together, and it it wasn't thought of as a permanent thing. The paint got washed away. So, yeah, I do do think of the monument as more ephemeral.
1: Well, there's that kind of weird thing where... um the Keith Haring mural in Collingwood has yes. been monumentalized, and
0: Yeah, there's like a, about, mo, uh, like a manual this thick, I've it's, seen it, it's on really how gross. to bring it back. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but the whole time it was, you know, ignored and unprotected. So people said no one graffitied over it. And since it's become council property, it's been hit like every six months really badly. And it's interesting how that feeling has changed in the community. Um, but on um, that... Openness of not depicting people or not using a lot of figuration. Um, I'm interested in your use, uh, Emily, of structures as sculptures, like the structure of the library, the kind of permeable structure. And you talked about not wanting to use something like bronze, which has a real kind of asserts its authority.
0: Yeah, I guess. Well, well, I actually. When I first started making things for the kind of the outside, I, um, I went and met with Inga King and we, we spoke um, about how I would translate the work. And I became... Rea- I always greatly admired her work and, um, and grew up with it as well. And so I kind of adapted a, a modernist... Um, methodology of abstraction and I also felt that, that those modernist women sculptors, that it was about the, they were, they were feminists but it was about the technology, it was how they got together, like Inga had a, an arc welder in her garage, she broke she in neighbours, she just set up the whole system of public art in Melbourne and, um, and people took it and adapted it. And so, so, yeah, I was very influenced by her. So she worked with um, construction rather than casting. Um, and yeah, I was interested in this idea of the model and how it could be made bigger and that construction. I, I also, because that was how I worked in the studio myself, and then I thought that the image of the text as this really readable thing, I'm interested in how things can be uh, legible and then, and then fall, fall away. And that convivial social space, that cosmopolitan space, is actually about being presented with something you don't understand. Um, and and being generous and and coming to a work with a friendly regard and an openness. So that's why I'm sort of interested in hiding the the meaning. I have a lot more uh, faith in the audience than um, a lot of uh, people who are in charge of of things. I think people's visual literacy is actually exemplary. So
1: Yeah. yeah. I think it's a really central question also for anyone here who's interested in making public art because you kind of have to jump through a lot of hoops a lot of the time and often there's a demand for a degree of legibility because it's meant to be, you know, for the people, so to speak, or for a community. Um, Does anyone want to share how they negotiate kind of defending their ideas through different kind of processes that may want things to be more explicit or...? Any of yeah, you? I can. T- <laughs> I, can t-
0: I can talk to that. Um, well, I actually think that spaces like this, like ACCA or NGV, are spaces for public art. I don't see any difference in the the kind of demands for legibility that are made here or there or uh, by the City of Melbourne. So, I think that whole idea of public private has comp- is totally up for grabs and has p- completely collapsed. Um, Yeah, I think if you can speak to your idea, if it sticks, it sticks. I guess it's about having a a thick skin and uh, yeah, and sticking up for the audience. That's always my my position. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you know, if you're working in the public space, you really like, and I couldn't have done it in the way that I'm doing it now as a young artist. So I do think you develop confidence over time. And I think negotiating what is really important is something that you learn on the job as well over time. Um, and it is, like, there is constant negotiation. You can't, um, unless unless you're very, unless your work is immovable, <laughs> which, you know, um, like for every project that I've done, except at Anna Schwartz, which gives me, she gives me incredible freedom. But if it's in any museum, there's always... Especially in a group uh, context, there's always... there's a diff- It's a different um, universe that we live in now where designers are designing exhibitions, curating... Mm. So there's a curator <laughs> and then there's a designer that's doing the floor plan, negotiating where you go, and then you've got to kind of fit into this space. Or you... And so I've kind of learned through that is that I actually determine the space. And... Um, and determine what I need, and they have to kind of try and get them to work around what I need. And that... So I, so you have to come to the negotiation for being very clear and have to have done a lot of work. So initially I was working on the spot um, in the process of in- installing work, and then I realised I couldn't do that anymore because it's too stressful, and um, and you get moved, and if you don't know what you're really doing, it's clear and... Yeah, and then I feel very grateful that I had someone like Kanye West that came along and just went, I love what you do, can you do it for my house? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. So, um, yeah, and that's kind of the difference between the the, um, public through Instagram (laughs) and the public through museums, Um, how people experience things. That's, That's a whole different... Mm, dialogue around what public space is as well. But that's not what we're talking about tonight as well. I'm aware that, I agree with Emily, that the museum space is a public space as much as the outdoor space.
0: Yeah, and they need the audience. So yeah. they've got the little clicker. Yeah. And so there, there is that, <laughs> that's the commodity. The public is the commodity. So I think those pressures are there. And as you say, it's how you negotiate it's, it's a path through it.
3: Well, we've yeah. been in some of the same shows where we've had to, <laughs> had to do that separately. But it's, it's yeah. awful because, yeah, it's awful but it's enlightening because there is a real shift in how museums operate. And also with, you see this with public programs, you see this with um, children's programs, you know, mm. it's very clear.
2: Uh, I think with, with, with the development of this work, Brooke and I were very lucky other than working with each other and being able to give each other support. We had wonderful support from the City of Melbourne in making it. And I acknowledge Linda Roberts in the front row uh, here, who was a massive advocate uh, for this work within the City of Melbourne. But I mentioned Andre Bonas from Monash Art Project who helped with the initial 3D modeling within the City of Melbourne. Uh, there was Jeff Nelson who helped with the, with the, um, the plantings and, and making a, a design that meant that it kind of grows up and, and goes back down at different times of year. There's different times of year other flowers come out. A lot of healing plants. So I, f- I feel like uh, we had a, a wonderful run. It wasn't, you know, there's was, there was always hiccups. But perhaps working in the public space, other than um, understanding that it's it's not not necessarily yours. It's for it's for everyone. And particularly in this project where there was a, a commemoration committee for Taneatua Moabohina, and every year there's a commemoration on the 20th of January, and you can all go down. It's broadcast on on 3CR Public Radio. I see Emily there each year. Um, With our respective families. Uh, They advocated for a memorial on this site for nine years before it was actually made, and Joe Toscano, who was the head of that committee, talks about how on the first year they were escorted away, or the police tried to escort them away, and as the years uh, passed, the police would offer an escort as they went from uh, this memorial site to uh, the Queen Victoria market where... Uh, and Maulbahina are buried in the unconsecra- unconsecrated grave section beneath the market. So Joe would always say, you know, the first part of the campaign is complete and uh, the second part of the campaign is to you know um, dig up their remains and repatriate them to Tasmania. So there's, there's already, before we started as artists, there's a big community um, waiting for this work and supporting it. So we were very well supported. Uh, but within the within the text, there's one in the slides which says um, uh, a clash of cultures um, and colonial justice. I mean, that we, we had different texts, and all that went to um, all the different stakeholders in a way for feedback. And Auntie Patsy Cameron um, gave us that text in to replace something that we'd written. And Brooke and I were very open to that um, dialogue. With elders and and other people involved with the project, because we realised again that it's not just about presenting our ideas, but uh, bringing the community along with us and including that within the work.
1: I think yeah, that um, engagement with site must have been quite a powerful experience because it's such a loaded site, and you know, in the establishment of Melbourne, it's like literally been. Paved over and kind of made it anonymous until you've made this work. So it's um, it's really amazing to have that space and that kind of. It's got an aura to it now, and there were people coming up yesterday when I went to have a look at it and kind of just really, you know, spending time with it, trying to figure out what was going on and learning about it, and you know, enjoying the plants and things. You know,
2: so people, leave, well.
0: people leave flowers. Yeah, and, I, I think know. that was an
2: amazing moment at the launch in uh, 2016, uh, 11th of September, 10th of September, 11th, 11th September. Um, when wreaths were laid on top of the, the swing, the tomb structure, and it really act, every time the community comes back on the 20th of January, uh, it really activates that space. So it's not just a, a space for reflection, it's actually it becomes an active space um, for a community to gather as well.
0: Yeah, because it's kind of... It, spatially, it's theatrical, mm-hmm. so it rests back. That idea of that horrific spectacle. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of public art things have this kind of idea of a democratic space, Mm. and I think that should be called into question Mm. with the situation we find ourselves in now. But yeah, I think spatially it's really interesting, and yeah, often um, the speakers use it as well Mm. with banners and...
1: Um, it's actually question time. Did anyone have any questions that they want to ask? I've got a couple up my sleeve if you want thinking time. Oh, yeah. Hi. Um, I just had a question for Kathy. Just earlier you mentioned this idea of the presence of absence and how that's quite important in your work. I just wondered if you could expand on that and how... How you came to exploring the presence of absence, particularly when it is about memorialising or um, you know paying respect to something of the past and not including the like you know the human body or a particular individual.
3: More um, uh, well, broadly speaking, I'm interested in challenging the idea of what a memorial or a monument can be, and. Monument or the memorial is usually about remembrance of an event or a person um, of an event in history or a person that's known. And because of the materials that I use that I've consciously chosen to work with, I'm interested in challenging the idea of what, what that can be. And so I've explained a little bit about my family history. So My father was a Holocaust survivor. And a lot of survivors don't have graves or um, places of burial like um, where sites of atrocities took place. And so I've been interested in collective memory and history and so I'm not making work to acknowledge any one history, one event. Um, And I am interested in the presence of absence through the colours that I use, like white for me was very much referencing that idea. The presence of absence for me also uh, is very much about speaking for people collectively that can no longer speak for themselves. So, um, you know, a lot of Holocaust survivors have a lot of guilt um, and go back to sites of memory uh, of the camps to remember the people that didn't come out with them. So I've done a lot of um, uh, I've I've experienced a lot of types of remembrances at different events and that's the idea that I want to translate. Yeah, Or one of the ideas I want to translate. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question but I'm also interested in the um, monochrome and in relationship to not being illustrative or um, about the body or about a person or um, about the event, um, monochrome actually, for me, opens, is, is a connection with art history as well as opening up a dialogue um, for people's own um, uh, relationship with the material or the shape themselves rather than uh, being quite specific about the meaning of the work. So...
1: Because you can kind of think of a monochrome as like an unformed field, I guess, that you can project kind of anything you want into. And maybe uh, not having figures, you can also have a more of a spectral experience, like different people's memories coming together in the one place. Um, yeah, which I think maybe is more contemporary approach to, like you say, addressing a lot of different people's experiences
3: and memories. and. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of cemeteries I've been to where there are no tombstones. So there's this presence, the idea of presence of absence just repeated itself. If you go through Berlin, if you go through any cities where people are no longer there and they can no longer, people can no longer mark memory, their families are no longer around to do that, then there are many different ways that people have invented to, to, to mark sites of memory. And artists especially have kind of developed this
1: further. Does anyone else have a question they'd like to ask? Hi there, thanks. Um, uh, This is just to whoever would be interested, but I wanted to ask about this kind of movement of counter-memorials or anti-memorials and the abstraction used, and whether that's at risk of appearing ambiguous when there's cases of like a clear perpetu- perpetrator, or say if the state is implicated
3: um, when it's abstract, if it then appears neutral as a site. I'll answer then, I'm gonna hand over. It's, I, I don't know the answer, <laughs> but um, I do think lo- some of it is about how that is presented either through a title, the material that's um, information around it, or the location of where it is. Because often, um, some of these abstracted memorials are in the locations of where events took place. Um, So, yeah, that's, yeah, but I'm gonna hand over.
2: Uh, I think speaking specifically to standing by Tanimunrat Moobohina, I feel like with art, a lot of times, you want to avoid didacticism so that there is space for the audience. So I, I do agree with Emily about people are very visually literate and engaged. But within that memorial, we did include didactic text, uh, some from Claire Land, who's written a, re- a report for City of Melbourne. Uh, she'd also written a, a document, which is really fantastic, called Forms to Monuments for Complex Histories, which you can download from the City of Melbourne our website, which is a great guide. Uh, with working with public art and and complex histories. Um, And within within those didactic texts that we included, as well as our own thoughts, there are kind of pointers or links to more concrete information about the historical events and how they relate to Melbourne. But I feel that the main thing I'd probably say is that uh, just having the monument there, whether it's in an an abstracted way or a, uh, a figurative way, uh, makes the story more visible and so it, it, it should exist in that way regardless and people come to it in, in different ways. I suppose that
1: um, accusation of being apolitical is always something that abstraction is a bit vulnerable to. Um, especially like you say, Kathy. it's a good point. It depends where it is and what it's in relation to as to how people might read it or miss the point and like I guess there's a bit of a risk there, you know.
2: Um,
1: does anyone else have anything? Yep.
2: That was a very good question, thank you.
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. Thanks everyone for your um, presentations and responses. Um, this is a question for Emily about, I'd really love you to expand on. Um, Not the freeway. Right? No. <laughs> no, I'm just really curious about this idea of the public space and the public space of the museum collapsing. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, well, I guess it's a question of what, what, is, what is public? So I would now say, I would more use the word semi-public space. Um, and my personal experience is that, yeah, that public space is sh- ever shrinking and that it is contested. If you think about privatisation, that whole era is complete. Um, we've got to get it back. Got to get all that stuff back. And yeah, the, the museum is a kind of metaphor. Like this space here is semi-public. There are events here. The ACCA has to raise money to survive. Um, and that is a, a private endeavor mixed with this public funding. So yeah, we can be kind of utopian in the way we say public, but yeah, what what is what is that? I guess is my always what I'm what I'm thinking. And um, yeah, I, I, be, I believe in public space. I believe in public education, in public resources, but I also know that institutions are can can be toxic and damaging. So yeah, I think my work yeah wrestles between those things and probably for all of us actually has a bit of a darkness and a, an existential humor to it that comes from that experience of our ever shrinking public.
1: Just on that darkness because I wonder if many people would really think about that looking at your very vibrant works, but uh, I, I just the, think
0: it's it's the dark and the light I would say I think it comes that in my work comes from um, yeah from my family's experience of childhood institutionalisation and uh, I mean perhaps in some ways I can relate back to the the previous question because I think to cope with that they had to be incredibly have an affirmative politics but it was very much about um, yeah about utopia was something you you had to do or you're not going to survive. So yeah, I think there, yeah, there is that black and white or darkness in, in, and light in my work, I, I feel. But I also think that we're in this era of compulsory optimism. <laughs> so, so we have to be really optimistic all the time. It's fantastic. Things are going really well. That to me is really horrific. So I see that as quite a dark... The, the way people function at events, I find that quite dark.
1: Quite a <laughs> negative kind of pressure on how people live day to day.
0: Yeah, everything always has to be fantastic, and yeah.
1: Do you think we could think about your some of your public works as like memorials to past ideals, like maybe you know better times, or because you know, use I think, the archive?
0: Yeah, oh, well, that's like a whole other forum. I think like. That I hope that they are live. The archive has to be lived history. It cannot be like zombie Marxism, where you're reanimating the dead. I I'm more of a post-Marxist, so I'm very interested in the the kind of European intellectual tradition from Australia that moves past Marxism. Um, in terms of finding solutions, I'm probably more of a post-humanist. Um, so I'm not advocating that we have a socialist society. I'm making a kind of provocation. A- and often socialist ideals as nostalgic ideals are actually used to co-opt us into working for nothing. It's a great cause, how could you not do it? How could you not participate? It's gonna be amazing. Um, and that is also that kind of democratic Ideal, and this is where we're finding this, this, um, this popularism and this far right movements. They're coming up through democracy and through this optimistic space, so I think that's scary.
1: Mm. Um, does anyone else have a question that they would like to ask?
3: Yeah, I like to ask all of you, but especially for Trent, about the what is public art now? Because it's used to be like a public art suggested like a monumental um, visual things, Um, and then everybody can understand if you see that. And then that's you know there is some metaphor in into the form itself, but like your work is much more almost like an installation, conceptual art. And um, yeah, so I just wondered how you see what the transitions of the notion of the public art is at this moment?
2: Yeah, I feel like it's an incredibly expanded field. And other than monuments and memorials, I feel like ephemeral performance within a public space um, is, is equally valuable. Uh, I mean, we, we, this goes a little bit off topic, but uh, Brooke did a, a, a conference, and there were some there were some public talks, and some curators, John Mundine and Fiona Foley, talked about how their works within gallery spaces were memorials, or the exhibition is a memorial. So I think the titles that we apply to art can be very fluid, and uh, and you know wherever that work takes place. Uh, as Emily talked about the, the the gallery being a public public art or public space um, it, it engages across those across those areas
3: I think the notion of public is very different to what it used to be. Um, I think creative industries is is very expansive now, uh, trams, freeways um, there wasn 't like, when I went to art school, there was no such thing as public art in the way that, it, there, you know, you understand what that means now. Um, but I do think it's very fluid. And public art can be in interior spaces, it can be in garages, it can be invisible. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, but it's really about making... Uh, giving something a presence mm. whatever form it takes so yeah yeah I, I would agree with that that
0: it's become like a foot like all um contemporary art in a way a form of alternative media mm. so um yeah a, a, a space to activate particular ideas and experiences and um histories Do you think- That's the next step, yeah. Yeah, it, I think it's transitioning to become more ephemeral and relational and performative.
2: Mm. And I think mm. that, and Andrew, you mentioned something about permanence or impermanence and how that relates to the, the monument and, and public art particularly. I mean, a lot of works are commissioned for... A, for a, or, you know, a, a public artwork these days, I think, is 25 years in terms of its lifespan. And you know, within the contracts, there's information about you know, if, if we have to move it somewhere. And you think with this work that Brooke and I made that, well, it really needs to be on the site that it is. Not, it's not likely that's going to happen, but you know, who knows what someone might want, within council might want to do within 10 years with that space, or RMIT expands somehow, um, <laughs> you know, or the jail kind of is re, re, reactivated. Oh <laughs> But I think the idea of uh, uh, public art engaging a community and the community, community caring about the, the, the work enough or that space as a civic space to contribute to it will kind of add to its permanence. And so public art as a, a community space as well.
3: One of the best, um, for me, experience I had of seeing something public was... Uh, ..or experiencing a public work was... Uh, previous biennial with Pierre Wiggs' um, forest inside the Opera House. Did anyone experience that? That was an extraordinary event, and that no longer exists. That was temporary, um, but monumental, and um, obviously very costly. But we also... Um, there, there are many artists that actually are on the biennale stage or uh, in the kind of dialogue where they get to activate their ideas for a period of time and then it goes away, the work no longer exists, so, or it exists in a different form somewhere else. So we live in a very different age where there are many different forms, Instagram didn't exist, internet didn't exist when I went to art school, um, just, it's, and it's going to change again in 10 years' time, It'll be diff- we'll be talking about different platforms then, I think.
1: Thank you. That was a really uh, valuable question for the discussion, I think. It was something we hadn't talked about before. Um, has someone got something else that they might like to bring up? Uh, hi, and uh, again, thank you uh, so much. This has been a really fantastic Discussion. Um, my question is uh, coming off. Uh, I think particularly Cathy's point about the, the over design of the museum space, um, and whether the uh, the the public nature of the moment uh, of the monument invites a greater potential pleasure for you as the artist in the more open responses that are available. Um, and then from that, perhaps if there are any uh, uh, unanticipated. Public uses of your works, of your monumental works, that uh, have caused you perhaps to, to go back and, and reread it yourselves? Sorry, a uh, bit of a complicated one there.
0: Uh, well, I have experienced uh, people making offerings to uh, the rabbit that is down at Docklands. So people in the apartments put carrots out for it. So and that's the kind of student housing area. Um, yeah. So it's kind of interesting the idea of it being owned in that way. I, I guess. Um, yeah. Also the idea of like I did this big bird on the freeway and there was a headline like Big Chook gets dirty looks. <laughs> like, and I was asked to comment on that in like the Dandenong leader and I was like, oh my God. But yeah, I guess that idea of a kind of gut reaction is really positive, I think. And, and, and again, comes back to that idea of a, a convivial, like what, how do you cope with the other or how do we deal with the difference in, in society? So I think it's... Yeah, it's confronting, but, yeah, you do I mean, it's like very difficult to get feedback, so that's, that's feedback. <laughs> mm,
2: I think once it becomes out of your control, once it's, once it's in a public realm, but with the Tanamonite Right Mubahina Memorial, I mean, there is that tomb structure connected to the swing and sometimes people sit on it and uh, that's... I have a problem with that. And uh, but the thing is that often people, if someone sees someone sitting on, it, they go, "Hang on, you know, do you know what you're sitting on?" Um, and I th- so I think that, that, that there's a provocation within that. I mean, it is connected to a swing structure. You usually, sw- sit on a swing. Uh, so sometimes people lock their bikes to the fence that goes around it. Um, I have a problem with that too. <laughs> but you know, when you have the early meetings about, oh, you know, someone will jump off that, someone's going to hang themselves from that. Structure. Um, We've been very lucky in that there's been kind of minimal uh, graffiti or damage um, to the work. There was some the the day before the launch, a bit of graffiti. But other than that, I think, you know, we've had one kind of window smashed um, at one point. So I think within that civic space, there needs to be a bit more trust uh, in the audience to respect, or in the community, for people to respect Mm -hmm. that space uh, once it's kind of given uh, that kind of meaning.
3: I'm not sure if I'm answering the question properly, but, and I was trying to look her up and I've forgotten her name and it's really bad I've forgotten her name, but I had a writer um, naming a character after seeing, uh, she wrote this fantastic book about memorials and and, um, a character Nina who she thought of after going through my white forest. And um, she didn't know anything about my history and she immediately, and she's Jewish, she went, um, thought about Auschwitz. And uh, I thought that was quite interesting. That was something I hadn't anticipated because of the abstract nature, or what I thought was the abstract nature of the work. And um, the unexpected for me was Kanye West. Giving me a call and going, I love your white forest. I want one, or I want that, and um, and getting something about the work from a distance, but not really understanding, but really understanding it on another level. So I don't know. The universe is strange. <laughs> so.
1: Just on that strangeness, I think it would be quite interesting to hear about how that commission <laughs> happened, Kathy. <laughs>
3: just called my gallery and said he wanted to speak to me and facetime me within an hour, and I was at work at Monash. And um, within a week, I was on a plane um, to LA making this work for him. But it was uh, before Christmas, three weeks before Christmas, and he wanted me to do his Christmas party. And I didn't want to do his Christmas party, but he wanted my work to be in that context. And we had to kind of, I had to work through an idea of how to do what I do for this context. Um, and the good thing about this experience is I was dealing with someone that's an artist, an art lover and an art collector. So it was a win-win um, surprisingly, <laughs> on that level, in that he's, he was incredibly respectful. But I um, made the work. I did a FaceTime meeting. Of a, he took me through his house, FaceTime, and I thought, okay, I can do a forest in that context. And I explained what it was about, and we made it quite quickly. And I, he gave me all the people that work for him at Yeezy to sew the work um, because of the short time frame. He had to help me produce it, and um, and I took my daughter and my babysitter and my assistant, and I started scouting for material before I got to l a and just kind of made it work for the house, but I also made it in separate parts that it can be another object, if not in this context, and in, in another shape so uh, it wasn 't the same as the white forest, completely different, and it was in relationship to his home and It was a kind of whole different kind of public-private experience.
1: That's an interesting point to finish on because it's like the exposure of the work to him came through the public space of the internet. So, again, the whole what is public, what is private is completely dissolved at the moment. Um, Unless any of you want to make a a final comment or put anything else out there, we might wrap it up because we've been here a little while. So, uh, thank you to everyone for coming. Thank Thank you to... Uh, the three of you for contributing, it been very generous, um, and thanks to Acker for hosting, and uh, the bar will be open for a while, if you want to hang around for a drink, and probably grab some people for a little chat, if you want to. Um, but yeah, thank you. Uh, please join me in thanking everybody who
0: You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.